Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and nutrition professor and a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, I'm just here as a quick intro this week, however, because we're going to go on site to the experimental biology meeting uh, where co-host Dr. Mike Nelson and frequent contributor Dr. Josh Cotter are uh, actually recording from a hotel room all of the things that they're learning uh, about sports nutrition and exercise physiology and all of the cool science that we can apply to ourselves. So let's just go on over to those guys, and we'll see everyone next week with our regular format. Hey, what's going on? This is uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm out here in Boston with Dr. Josh Cotter. (laughs) And we're recording a special travel episode of Iron Radio here. This is actually being recorded live from the Experimental Biology Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. So this is, we decided we're going to do this one live. So whatever happens, happens. Um, Do you want to give us a background there, Dr. Josh, on what the Experimental Biology Conference is for people who are not familiar with it? Yeah, the Experimental Biology Conference is a a pretty sweet gathering of several different organizations, uh, different backgrounds. So of main interest to probably our listeners are the uh, organizations American Physiological Society and uh, the American Society of Nutrition. Uh, But there are other groups here as well, such as groups focusing on molecular biology, pharmacology, uh, toxicity, and so on and so forth. So there's uh, almost an overload of information, as I know my brain's pretty full at the present moment, and I think yours is too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So uh, we focused on probably sitting in on a lot of different talks that are relating to physiology and nutrition, and we'll try to share with you guys some of the cool information that we found. Yeah, and it's... Probably, I mean, would you say this is probably the biggest conference you've been to? I mean, just compared to other conferences? I know for myself, this is by far the biggest one. Even the World Conference that I went to with, you know, Lonnie and you were there too in Spain. This one, it seems like it's, I'd say, almost the same size. Probably not quite as big as that, but it took up almost the whole conference center here in uh, Boston, so... Yeah, Boston has a pretty big conference center, and they utilize practically all of the space there. I don't remember the numbers, but uh, for some reason off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's around ten to 15,000 individuals that come yeah. there. And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, an international event as well. You know, we, we sat with at the APS dinner with a group of Brazilian researchers, yeah. and, you know, it's a pretty cool uh, experience to see that there are individuals around the world interested in the same things that we're interested in, a lot of them doing cutting-edge research. Yeah, and the nice part is, like, I know we get some, I posted some stuff to Facebook, and people are like, where is the reference for this and that? And, you know, it's always a good question to know where the sources are. But even one of the talks we went to, I'm sure we'll talk about here with Circadian Rhythms yesterday, the guy was literally just in the middle of writing up, you know, the data, had done the data analysis. So, I mean, my guess, that part probably won't even be in print for 
what, two years at least probably by the time it gets through peer review and written and submitted and all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, that, that's something that we get a chance to experience that I think a lot of uh, listeners need to understand as well as how really difficult and challenging getting research published really is. We even had uh, an individual that talked at one of the uh, talks yesterday on skeletal muscle hypertrophy and atrophy that said, you know what, I was going to present these results on some research that was just wrapping up, and you know what, the results didn't turn out exactly the way we wanted to, and (laughs) so I would have very little to present on. So what is being spoken at these conferences is literally cutting edge, happening right now, and even if it is finished, it's going to take potentially another, at maybe bare minimum, six months, but potentially yeah. up to a couple years, depending on who's available to look at that data and write something up. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you want to hop right into it? We got our coffee here, so we're, we're good to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one talk that we started out with that I think is good to, to preface everything else with is uh, we sat in on some individuals that were discussing how to organize big data coming up. And I think when we present research, oftentimes we present it as the small research project that was done, not always small, but small comparatively to everything else that's been done. And we look at it in rather isolation. And I think something that we'll see more often in the future is the better capability of categorizing and cataloging the research that's going out there so we can kind of fit that small research into the big picture. And I think that's what happens on Iron Radio a lot, right? You know, Lonnie will bring up some good information and then you'll pull in something else that you know to help explain what happened in that original uh, comment that Lonnie brings up. And that's something we have to learn to do. So hopefully we'll get some good discussions on some of the smaller pieces of research and pulling it into the big picture. So. Yeah, the nice part about that is they're working on trying to get standards for almost like open access research, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and the hard part they were saying is trying to get research to agree to a standard, trying to get the standard implemented, because you may have data that's put out there that other people can then, you know, reference and possibly use. But then you have to know well, how was it collected? What was the study population? You have to get down to all the infinite amount of details and make sure that's presented in a way that they understand it and can take it and use it and so at um, first glance it sounds like wow that's an awesome idea why doesn't everyone do that and then you get into all the details and realize all the work that has to go into to make sure that even when that comes out that that can be useful and you're drawing the right conclusions from it too so i think it was a good intro to help me respect and i hope it makes everyone else respect uh you know the difficulty of research And I think we've discussed, too, it's really easy to poke at research saying, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Uh, To know that it's not possible to do everything in one study and that we need to piece that study into everything else that we know about the topic area. So hopefully our readers or our listeners can take that into consideration uh, as they move forward and trying to be more scientific with how they approach their training methods. Yeah, and as you know, that by virtue of doing one thing means you can't do the other thing. So when I did the Monster Energy Drink Study, which is in JSSN now, I had the choice between a time trial format or a ride to exhaustion. So a time trial is where you, it's much more like a race, right? Everyone's trying to finish a set amount of distance in the shortest possible time. Where a ride to exhaustion is you ride as long as you can until these certain markers of exhaustion, and then you can't go anymore. So the caveat is that the ride to exhaustion, people are like, well, but no one goes out and does a race and just sees how far they can get when they're just super tired and stop. It's, you know, marathons 26.2 or, you know, powerlifting or whatever. Um, but by virtue of picking a ride to exhaustion, which is what I picked, 
I then can't do a time trial because you have to pick one or the other in order to run the study. And each one has its pros and cons. And in my case, the ride time to exhaustion, all the early caffeine work was done on that. So if I did a time trial, I have to find another way to sort of justify why I picked that because the caffeine data that was done early on isn't directly applicable to that because it's a slightly different format. It's informative, but it's not as direct. So there's always, I always tell people if they can, ask the researcher, you know, why did you pick this instead of that? And there's probably a really good reason why they did it. And, and a lot of it is just sadly logistics. You know, we couldn't get in a super elite, you know, bodybuilding population to run the study you know and then how do we get them to come in the lab you know we may not be able to pay them oh oh and don't train change your training for five or six weeks because we want you to be in this study um, as much as i'd love to see those things published it just becomes pretty difficult a lot of times so you have to do the best you can yep absolutely and be able to take that knowledge and interpret it appropriately i think yeah. is the, the key so yeah Cool. Well, another talk we went to was a systematic review of intermittent fasting, which uh, if Lonnie was here, I could poke at him about that. But um, I've actually used intermittent fasting a fair amount over the past four to five years. And again, it's not if you want to get, you know, super huge and you're on a big mass gain diet, you know, not eating is probably not going to be your best choice. Um, But I have used it with people in uh, body composition. So I'll have them fast, which is uh, no food or drink, which we'll get into here. For, in my case, I've used it for 19 to 24 hours, about once per week. Um, it has, I think, some benefits of having super low levels of insulin. So it's going to push your body to use more fat. Obviously, you're going to cut out all calories for that day, too. So you're going to have a little bit of a caloric uh, negative situation. And it was interesting. That was actually the title of the talk. was a systematic review of intermittent fasting. And when we were sitting next to each other, I was like, she's presenting the data and it was very well presented. It was very well done. They went out to you know the PubMed source. They did their search terms. And initially, they had 110 articles that they reviewed. They went through all their inclusion criteria and you know, trying to compare them and everything. And at the end, they only ended up analyzing six studies actually met all their criteria. And what was interesting is that it wasn't really intermittent fasting. Fasting being, I did not eat anything for a set period of time. It was more like intermittent caloric restriction because none of the diets that they they looked at actually had a, a really hard uh, fasting period. So like Monday, don't eat anything. You know, okay, Tuesday, go back to your normal um, diet. And there's a little bit of data that's closer to that. But at the end, they didn't really seem to have much for a takeaway um, they said that they probably need a longer time point. So the time points they looked at were as short as eight weeks up to six months. So pretty variable in length. Uh, most of them were just very low caloric diets versus a low caloric diet. Um, it was interesting, but I'd, I talked to the, the researcher afterwards and they said there just isn't, when they ran the study, a lot of data on what is really a fasting uh, day per se. And then the other part is if you're going to enroll people, say, in a trial where, you know, fasting is hard um, to do, enrollment's not real good. I talked to another researcher in Canada, and I was asking him about some stuff, and he said they tried to get a fasting study through their IRB, their Institutional Review Board, where it was just uh, 24 hours in mice, and uh, the IRB for mice, which is a different one, but we won't get into the names for that, 
um, said, nope, that's, uh, that's kind of too cruel to the mice. You can't abstain them from food for 24 hours. Um, so even something that, you know, this crowd would probably be into, right? And, you know, you know, horse piss will make your, you know, bench press go up. So we may consider taking it. Um, and fasting, if we could show that it's beneficial, probably most people in this crowd may consider doing it. But to an average population, even a population of mice, trying to get that approved and into a study is pretty hard. <laughs> I'm not going to be taking shots of horse piss anytime <laughs> soon, that's for sure. Uh, this yeah, coffee for, tastes much better than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the folks out there, yeah, just, just like we have for humans and IRB to make sure research is done uh, safely and appropriately, there's uh, the IACUC for, for uh, animals as well. So uh, even though they do some pretty serious things to animals, <laughs> I'm you know, a little surprised to hear that they have difficulty with fasting. But it's a problem for researchers to do what we want to do um, in regards to getting them through those boards. Sometimes very feasible, other times perhaps not. Um, I, I thought this talk was very well done as well. And really uh, what they were, were looking at was the, uh, you know, how, how are you creating a caloric deficit? Is it through, uh, you know, a caloric deficit to the same amount on every day? Or is it creating greater deficits on certain days and maybe less deficits on other days? And I think uh, it might have been Dr. Campbell that brought up that mm -hmm. question. He's like, how are you defining intermittent fasting. fasting. And that's yeah. when we all kind of had that moment. It's, oh, yeah, she's not actually talking about intermittent yeah. fasting. She's talking about some days with lower energy intake versus other days with higher energy intake. And I think we had an offshoot discussion about, you know, whether or not that might be a good thing for our average folk out there, at least where, you know, I think the researcher said, you know, we're looking at this from a perspective of people can really, uh, you know, hammer out several days where they're trying very hard not to intake a lot of calories, and then they have other days where they're a little bit more flexible in doing that. But yeah, I think we had the discussion of certain individuals might be able to take that way off in the wrong direction to where, you know, they take those off days, and if you give them that freedom or maybe perhaps too much freedom, that day includes, you know, cupcakes and cookies and cereals and, you know, everything that you can think and of that might have. For, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, maybe two days now. And <laughs> so from a caloric, uh, caloric uh, viewpoint, perhaps, but, you know, from a health standpoint and from a nutrient standpoint, perhaps that might not be necessarily a good thing. So anyways, it, it was a well-done study for, I guess, the type of information that they were able to gather. But I think something to move forward with this is defining. And I think everyone's had difficulty in figuring out, you know, I skip breakfast, am I intermittent fasting or not? Mm -hmm. You know, do I have to take a full 24 hours to be considered intermittent fasting is defining what that really means so that we can move forward and have decent discussions and be able to have the knowledge that we're actually talking about the same thing. Know. Yeah, and research at ISSN last year, she presented uh, some stuff, a researcher there, that I think it was almost like an every other day type fasting method. And what they found was that if you had a day of very either low caloric or may have even been fasting, the next day you did eat more, but you didn't eat as much to replace sort of that day. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting because your next question then is, okay, if I didn't eat or ate a very low amount on this day, do I make up for it and more um, the next day? And, you know, her initial research said it doesn't appear that subjects um, do that. But, you know, at the end of her study, it was obviously another way of controlling calories and there may be some other uh, side benefits by doing that possibly too. Mm -hmm. I think in that same uh 
same meeting that we were in there, uh, the follow-up presenter was talking about energy density and adherence mm -hmm. as predictors of weight loss in, in their study. And, um, you know, they were looking at how adherence to a prescribed diet influences someone's ability to uh, lose weight. And so they were looking at energy density in regards to kilocalories per grams of food. And they found out that a reduction in energy density was associated with weight loss, regardless of what kind of diet group they had. And they had diet groups that con contained higher levels of protein or higher, le higher levels of fat. And... Uh, I think they said that it was easier for those individuals. So adherence was important, first off. And then it was easier for those individuals to adhere to uh, either a high-protein diet, or, or I shouldn't even say necessarily a high-protein diet, but a diet that has a protein target. Mm -hmm. um, you give someone a protein target in their diet, they can adhere to that very well. Or you can give them a fat target, and they can adhere to that very well. But if you give them protein and fat targets that they need to adhere to in their diets, then they found out there was uh, much less adherence with that. So kind of almost uh, 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 the more complex targets you give an individual, perhaps the less adherence. And that seems to make sense to me, mm -hmm. you know, from a standpoint of you have less to keep track of if you have less targets. Yeah, and that's one thing I found with, with clients too is that, you know, I have some pretty competitive, you know, figure uh, physique clients and you know, a lot of them do kind of a macro-based type approach where here's your set amount of protein, carbs, and fat. Um, but for a lot of people, like one of my initial screening questions is um, we can do either sort of a more of a habit-based thing where we change kind of one thing at a time, or we can give you a set amount of macronutrients to follow. Which one do you want to prefer? You know, I don't. you can get into the arguments for the average person, which one is better. I always go by which one are you able to follow. And for most people, they're like, ah, you know, just like one thing a week. And it's pretty much always, okay, here's your amount of protein. Sort of the minimum I have is 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. That's probably a little bit on the lower end. And that goes back to, I know you helped on the book too, the protein resistance exercise training that uh, Lonnie and uh, Dr. Jose Antonio were the editors for. You know, both of us did help with the chapter in that. And you find that protein also helps with keeping lean mass helps with satiety, and it was interesting, as you mentioned in this study, too, that if you controlled one of the macronutrients, their adherence was pretty high, and then also that protein adherence was actually really good in all four of the groups. Mm -hmm. So my takeaway from that is that if you're only going to control one macronutrient, then protein is probably the one to give them things to control and has lots of other benefits, too, and that, that kind of fits with my practice, too. Mm -hmm. And they did in those diets that they were manipulating with protein and fat, they all uh, did produce weight loss yep. at the end of six months. But uh, I believe they had a maintenance period um, where they were looking at how well they maintained. Um, so the, another take home is, you know, you have, have a diet that's going to produce weight loss if it's well prescribed by the individual. But, you know, adherence afterwards might be a different story. Uh, and that's something that I think most people are really interested in, you know, and that's something that people fail at, I think, quite readily is maintaining their achievements after they really put forth that effort at the initial stage. Yeah, and a lot of the literature supports that, that if you you can lose a fair amount of weight doing all sorts of screwball stuff, and people know this intuitively, but trying to maintain that for especially as you get out to, you know, a couple months to a couple of years, 
Um, usually the ability to maintain that weight loss, if you just go by purely what's reported in literature, is pretty freaking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the pounds loss study from uh, primarily the Pennington Biomedical Research Group. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to discuss it at, uh, at this point in time or not, and I, I think it was in the same meeting, but uh, constant rules in nutrition, was that yeah. the same talk? There? Yeah, that was the talk after that. I think, did you get any feedback when you posted uh, yeah, something so about the was, good old 3,500 yeah. calorie so rule, right? We've heard that it's 3,500 calories is one pound of fat, and, and I know I'm completely guilty of using this as a rough metric in the, in the past. And it was fascinating because the researcher who presented it was actually a hardcore mathematician. So she wasn't necessarily in exercise physiology. Her background was in math. And I thought it was very interesting to see the viewpoints. I did a master's in mechanical engineering. So it's always interesting that when I went to the physiology department, I got assigned the two projects that had math, metabolic flexibility, because we're using nonlinear math, and then heart rate variability. And the only reason I got those two projects is because no one in the department had a math background. Cause you're, it, you're the math guy. <laughs> I was the math guy, person. and I went over there to avoid math. Um, but, you know, if you take the standard exercise phys or nutrition courses, you know, you take a few basic math courses, you take some biostats, and that's really about the end of it. Um, so what they were saying is that there's these sort of constant rules that are useful, but a lot of times they get just blatantly overextended. So the big thing about the calorie one, she said that it went back to a study in, uh, I think she said 1958, Wyskowski, if I got that right. And that was based on a 1930 study that used a 59-day study of a very low caloric diet. So they said the analysis of the 3,500 calories, she said it's not that number exactly, but that was based off of assumptions of how much water, how much fat is in there. And then to calculate how much weight would be lost using that, they went back and used one study. It was a very low caloric diet from the 1930s. So her whole point with all of that is to say that when we look at that general rule, yeah, it's, it's approximately close, but it can probably only work for about 60 days. And that's what the initial data was based on. And that's why you hear all this stuff of, oh, if you just drink two less cans of soda per day, you'll lose X amount of weight over two years and then 10 years and then 15 years. And you look at the data and you go, wow, that's, it seems like these tiny changes will make massive changes in a couple of years. And then you go, well, why is everyone still fat? Yeah. <laughs> and what you find, if you, you, I pulled up some of the data last night on it, is that the linear prediction just breaks down over several months. And this is only the caloric thing. This is not accounting for change in energy expenditure and NEAT and all these other things that, that go into there. And the, the takeaway is that it works really good in the, the short term. But once you start extrapolating that beyond where the data was collected from, so the data is collected from basically a 60-day study, that one, she said, we don't have a lot of data. And she reported some data in a paper she wrote to support that. And then they actually created a new model that actually takes that into account. So, yeah, I thought it was very interesting because now I have to go back and pull all the original papers and all, all that kind of stuff, too. So, yeah, uh, essentially, it's like a, an early measuring stick that you might be mm -hmm. able to use that, you know, is not necessarily a hard number. You know, we're taking some other data and we're trying to 
guesstimate, if you will, you know, the numbers that we're interested in, and that's going to have deviations yep. uh, with different conditions and different individuals, and that moves us right into what her next rule was. She, she talked about the 5% rule, and you'll oftentimes see weight loss studies where, uh, you know, if they're inducing a uh, weight loss drug, for instance, that if they're not experiencing a 5% weight mm-hmm. loss, then, uh, you know, the drug's not considered effective. And she was talking about, you know, is is this 5% weight loss that's considered clinically relevant? Is it, re- you know, they're saying it's clinically relevant for each and every person, but is it mm-hmm. really clinically relevant for each and every person considering we might have a person that weighs, you know, 250, 300 pounds and you might have another individual that weighs 150 pounds. How can you have that 5% rule be the same for everyone? And, you know, I think it's the same thing. There's going to be some individual variability or time-sensitive changes that are going to affect these constants that, you know, it's not always just a linear relationship or a one hard, fast rule uh, that's going to be applicable to everyone in all situations. Yeah, and you hit on my favorite point that I just pound relentlessly into everyone is that (laughs) there's very few purely linear responses in anything, especially in complex biological systems. You know, if you extrapolate it out, there's almost nothing that's linear. There's like a few instances, you know, so even like looking at, you know, gas intake and expenditure during exercise to whatever you want to look at, in general, the linear, nice, predictable responses are just not there. And the hard part is that humans are just programmed to think very linearly. I think the example was that if you take uh, one step that's exponentially um, doubling after each one, right? So you're kind of scaling in an exponential fashion, then in 30 steps you can get to the moon, right? Because you have that huge exponential inflection point where it just becomes super high. But the the brain is very, very hard at in predicting those and that type of thing too. So it's much easier for our mental models to be nice and simple and linear. So I think we kind of default to that all the time just because it's easier. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back with more from the Experimental Biology Conference here in Boston. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, 
we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Iron Radio listeners are a unique bunch. You value both in-the-trenches skills and the research and evidence that informs it. That's why, as a listener-supported show, we occasionally do funds drives to keep everything free and advancing. Did you know your donations at www.ironradio.org pay for web servers? They allow for small sponsorships of gifted competitors or students and even partly fund research on our specific population. That's what we're asking for during the spring and early summer funds drive. Dr. Lowry, that's me, and some students are on the verge of some key discoveries involving caffeine and explosive lifts, but we need help to get the message out. If you value the authenticity, expertise, and real progress Iron Radio provides, please consider a donation. Any amount is appreciated, but if you could put forward $25 or more and email robertfortney at hotmail.com about it, We'll send you some behind-the-scenes audio lab notes that were recorded during data collection. They offer true insight into what research is like on barbell athletes. Thank you for considering it. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, and I'm with Dr. Josh Cotter. And bringing you more information from the Experimental Biology Conference here in Boston. So one other one was talking about they added some whey protein to their diet, uh, middle-aged people. And it was a little bit interesting. They had a low-protein group, so less than 1 gram per kg per day. And the higher-protein group was not that different, so 1.2 grams per kg per day. Although they could have gone over that amount And the short version, which is probably not an uber shock to anybody here, low-protein group gained approximately 2 kilograms more, you know, so about 4.5 pounds of fat. And according to the study, it said they didn't see much benefit of protein intake over 1.2 grams per kg per day, although that group didn't gain as much fat. And what was interesting, though, was a weight training study, so 36 weeks of resistance training and aerobic training, didn't really catch what they did for the training there. But, again, more data to show that, you know, higher amounts of protein um, are going to be beneficial for each person. Yeah, I think uh, in in my notes they were doing one day of aerobic exercise and two days of resistance training. Ah, cool. So it's about three days a week. And it appears that the differing protein levels 
were affecting fat loss, uh, yeah. but not really any changes in lean body mass, which was kind of interesting. And I, you brought up a really good note, I think, during the talk, too, that, um, you know, they did four-day dietary recalls at, to, the, end. at the beginning and end yeah. of a 36-week Six study. Uh, study. <laughs> and, you know, we were discussing that, you know, when you are a subject in one of these studies and you probably hear about what the study is about, fat loss, weight loss, mm-hmm. uh, muscle mass accretion, you know, all these things, surely, even if you tell individuals, I've had this experience too, where we did not want individuals to change their diets. And we do these same kind of things too for our five-week studies. We do dietary recalls beginning and end. Mm-hmm. And I understand the flaws with that, but you know, we even detected differences that that they have in their diets even after five weeks. So, thirty six weeks. You know, I have to imagine there are some fluctuations within that thirty six week period. It would at least be nice to kind of see if they're going to go that route, like a midway point. It's kind of a checkup, and that would at least give them some information too on counseling them if they are kind of changing their habits. Because you know, there's not much difference between. Uh, you know, their groupings there, right? It was, um, yeah, less their three groups. I think you already defined already pretty small. Yeah, ranges it was a middle there. group too, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, it was less than 1.0 grams uh, between one and 1.2 grams and greater than 1.2. So, you know, pretty small ranges. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's kind of an interesting thing that they could have looked at a little bit more closely. Yeah, especially if you're going to go through the effort to do a 36 week resistance training and aerobic training study, those are monster pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. in order uh to do so i think just adding that i think would have been really nice to see um the one thing i do say is a plus is that they did spec protein per gram per kg per day because mm-hmm. in some of the other studies we saw that it, they did it as a percentage and that always just bugs me because the if your calories are scaling right so let's say you had 25 percent protein and you're in the 2000 calorie group and then, oh, 25% protein and maybe a 3,000-calorie group or calories change throughout the study, it just makes it really messy because your protein amount is now changing. I think if you just set it at, you know, amount per kg or per pound of body weight, at least that's relatively consistent throughout the study. And to me, when I read the study, it just is a lot easier to interpret in that type of thing too. So, Yeah, definitely agree on that. And I think they just, for those people interested they were consuming their protein uh twice a day i think with uh one one was around the workout period but i I might be a little off on that some more data protein good Mm. (laughs) there's actually a lot of protein talks there there was actually i think most of them were pretty favorable so yeah it was i don't I don't even remember seeing one that said protein intake above a certain threshold was not favorable. Right. Because um, you also have to remember, too, that this is in an average population in most of these studies. So a lot of, you know, weight training people are used to eating, you know, higher amounts of protein. So even the amounts we give tend to see to weight trainers to be a little bit on the lower end. Um, but these are actually in excess a lot of times of the RDA which as much as people hate that, that's still considered kind of the standard for an average population. So even doubling the RDA to someone who lifts is not really that high of a protein, but to someone in the average population, you know, a lot of times it's it's pretty high. It's at least a step in the right direction, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, dietitians at this uh, particular conference too, and at least seeing a focus 
and uh, almost kind of an acceptance that high protein diets are not the devil yeah. <laughs> is at least a step in the right direction, even if it's not as high of protein as maybe many of the listeners are consuming. Yeah. Cool. And the other one speaking of protein was a talk from uh, Dr. Donald Lehman. I know Lane Norton committed or helped with some of the data on this too. And it was pretty interesting. So they were looking at changes in muscle protein synthesis. And this was in our fuzzy furry friends, the rats. And what they found was they fed them like about three meals per day. And they did different protein amounts and different patterns. And they did find that the gastroc uh, increased by weight. And what they were looking at is the different quality of protein. You might have a little more notes on this too. And they compared sort of a high leucine content to a lower leucine content, the low leucine content being a wheat protein. And what was interesting is that in the wheat protein group, your body weight actually went up and so did the fat mass uh, that they have. And I think he said that the liver was actually bigger in them too. And someone asked him at the end, why was that? And they didn't really have a, a good answer for that. Um, but the gastroc went up by about 13%. So the takeaway on that one is that if you have different distributions of protein, that it looks like in, in mice, and there's some human studies that support this too, that a higher uh, leucine amount with the protein uh, may be beneficial for lean body mass and possibly keeping fat down. Yeah, I, I, that pretty much hit all my notes in here. I had one, maybe you touched on it when, when I was reading my notes, <laughs> but was that, uh, uh, yeah, they had the weight, uh, wheat protein that increased body weight and, and percent body fat mm -hmm. more, which uh, was kind of interesting. So. Yeah, another another uh, plus for the leucine that uh, we've been hearing so much about over the last several years. So. Yeah, and I, I did go to a poster that talked about uh, leucine looking at changes in acute uh, growth hormones and just overall changes. Didn't really show much of a change. They did show that acute growth hormones did go up a little bit, um, but they didn't see a massive difference in the groups either. Um, and I talked to a couple other posters that had on um, different leucine mechanics and that kind of stuff. And uh, one guy was very interesting because some of the the newer research says that, well, if you just measure, you know, the protein, the fractional synthetic rate, that that's just an acute marker that that doesn't uh, translate to the long-term training studies that you carry out in terms of changes in strength and hypertrophy. And you talk to guys like Dr. Stu Phillips, you know, he thinks that maybe we didn't capture the right time points, that there's probably maybe something still there. And in one of the poster sessions, I talked to a researcher and they gave a bolus dose of leucine. I think it was like a three or four gram dose and they compared it to a whey protein. And what they found was that looking at the acute changes in protein synthesis, that leucine kind of spiked up kind of, you know, early whey protein was had the most robust response. And then he said they went all the way out to six hours. I can't remember if this was human or rat. And then in six hours, the leucine group went up like super high, hmm. which doesn't match <laughs> almost any of the other data that we've seen. Yeah. So his thought was, well, maybe there's some weird time course that we're just not seeing because every time we do a measurement... In essence, we're just doing this really, really tiny snapshot of what we think is going on. 
And I know Stu Phillips' lab has done some other stuff looking at longer time periods. But as you know, if you want to grab stuff over, let's say, two days, you have to have the people come back into the lab. You have to do the measurements. You only have so much money to, to do it. So you kind of have to guess where you want to think that these time points are. Even if you're going the extra mile and going out to, let's say, two days, you know, some of them only grab one then at the later points of 24 hours and maybe 48. So you've got a gap of 24 hours that, you know, who knows kind of what's going on. So all that to say that in my biased opinion, I think a lot of the acute protein research is still interesting. It may or may not match um, chronic changing, you know, things. I think there's probably something still there. And hopefully as the technology becomes more available, we can start grabbing more time points and we can start mapping out a little bit better to see, you know, what's going on. And then there's always a debate of do the events we're looking at, do they even, you know, translate at all to sort of long-term changes and that type of thing. Yeah, we all picked up on those uh, protein studies and I, I love them like anyone else does when I first started seeing those. But feel like we're kind of beating a dead horse with some of those that are still yeah. coming out and I, I feel like I feel like have I read this before yeah. <laughs> you know they're all very similar so some of that has to do with limitations of technology with the ability to measure those kind of things long term but I think we'll start seeing more of that and it is extremely these are not easy things to do no. so not only to get subjects to come in but but the challenges in actually performing those are very difficult. So, you know, it's understandable why we're probably producing a lot of that type of research because it's in our capabilities at this time. And when I say us, I just mean the science community, yeah. <laughs> not me yeah. personally. And, and as you know, if you want to look at fiber types specifically, you have to do a muscle biopsy. Yeah. You know, so you got to take a pencil sized needle and stuff it in someone's quad and pull out a big chunk of tissue and put it under the scope or do whatever staining you want to qualify it. And those studies are harder to do. It's harder to get subjects in. I know we were talking and I read one study that had five muscle biopsies pre and post. So like 10 muscle biopsies per individual over the course of a study. I don't know who volunteered for that study, but you're not going to find a lot of those people walking around that want 10 chunks of muscle pulled out of their leg. I'll tell you how. It's money. <laughs> those are <laughs> they the must ones that pay them a lot. Those are the ones that we pay subjects money. Yeah. If you uh, prey on some of those college students, <laughs> they're like, wow, how much do you want to give me for that? Yeah. Sure, I'll sacrifice some of my muscle, muscle yeah. tissue. <laughs> uh, I did that in college. I volunteered for all sorts of studies. I had uh, <laughs> small needles put in the back of my peroneal nerve in my leg and all sorts of stuff. So I got 125 bucks for that to be done three times. <laughs> I went and jumped out of a plane. So <laughs> I do hope, uh, you know, if you ever get a chance uh, talking to the listeners out there to take part in a study, it's a great experience. Just yes, to, it know, is. If, Literally. You're, if you're out there and you really enjoy research and science, it definitely gives you an appreciation just of the, the scientific process. It's really cool if uh, anyone gets a chance to take part. Yeah, I had to volunteer as many, get as many people to volunteer for my study and so that's exactly what I did. I had students who were interested in research, and I'm like, hey, if you're really interested in research, you know, you should volunteer to be in a study, you know, because I did all the parameters on myself, so I knew what they were before I would ask people to do it. And I think it really is a good experience. I mean, if you're going to have some crazy Wingate, you know, power testing in your study, you should probably do it a couple times yourself so you know what you're putting the people through and, and having them do and that type of thing. So it's a good it's a good experience. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of muscle, I, I know you were 
perhaps getting a little sleepy at this particular point in time. But <laughs> we sat in on a talk I thought was pretty interesting yesterday evening, even though my head was spinning as well. But um, the one talk that kind of caught my eye, we were in a section that was looking at skeletal muscle hypertrophy and atrophy, but in regards to microRNA. And for those people out there that are still getting up to speed on that, microRNA are RNAs that will bind to messenger RNA and essentially silence them. So, what does that mean in English? So we have our <laughs> genetic code, and we produce messenger RNA that will later be uh, translated into protein. So the, how we get proteins that do everything that we think of within the body, uh, we first need to have a message that is translated into that protein. So if you create a message, normally we would have the protein come from it. But if you also have these little tiny bits of, um, they're, they're also RNA, but they'll bind to that mRNA and essentially block the ability to produce proteins from them. So they're kind of what we're going to see a lot more research, I think, in microRNAs. It's expensive research, though. And so this one individual uh, here, Dr. McCarthy from the University of Kentucky, looked at microRNA and muscle hypertrophy, and he he had a really cool take on it in regards to uh, satellite cells. And so satellite cells, I think Dr. Jose Antonio was on talking about mm-hmm. satellite cells before. So I think our listeners out there are understanding the importance of them. And, you know, those are the cells that essentially get called upon to create new myonuclei uh, during periods of, of growth and or repair. So the ability to create new muscle and repair muscle. Yeah, absolutely. And so this particular uh, researcher was looking at how satellite cells interact with uh, these uh, cells, uh, fibroblast cells that create um, uh, essentially what we'll think of as scar tissue around our, our muscle, our connective type tissue, uh, non-skeletal muscle tissue, and how they interact with each other. And so we know quite well that satellite cells are very important for skeletal muscle regeneration, especially from injury, but are they essential for growth? And he had a mouse model, I believe, where uh, they were able to create a way of um, silencing satellite cells, if you will, and I think that was through their microRNA-type changes. And uh, they were pretty much finding out that, uh, you know, you have, when you have decreased amount of skeletal muscle growth, you have more uh, of this fibrous-type tissue that's in there. And they're finding out that there's uh, crosstalk between the two. And so... You know, they were looking at this in regards to sarcopenia. So when we age, we generally have decreased satellite cells and probably as well, and I'm not sure exactly the research on this, but probably uh, lesser functioning satellite cells. And, you know, the idea is, is, is it the functioning of the satellite cells that cause decreased muscle mass with age or is it something else? And I, I think they were looking at uh, the idea that it's actually the increased uh, fibrous tissue that is being incorporated into muscle that that sort of silences the uh, satellite cells. So these tissues are talking to each other. These cells are talking to each other. And I thought that was really interesting that, you know, this, this crosstalk, and I think we might have discussed elsewhere too about, uh, you know, is... Uh, important or not when we have the scar tissue that's there Mm -hmm. and you know i think in certain aspects it is when we're talking about what's the alternative you know do we have the rest what's going to hold that muscle tissue together essentially but it also appears that there might be some communication between these cells too so perhaps too much of that tissue might be a bad thing long term yeah and even like i was just purely hypothesizing because i was 
kind of in and out of the talk by that point mentally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that if if you take the the muscle itself and you start pulling out contractile properties, and then now that tissue becomes stressed, maybe because it does have, has an impaired ability to create new and stronger tissue. Maybe the only thing it can do then is create this, you know, sort of scar tissue and collagen as sort of a replacement so that the fiber itself doesn't just get completely torn and disrupted, possibly. Mm-hmm. Who knows? That's highly speculative at this point. But I at least know from some of the cell culture stuff we did, and that's just basically getting the cells that we want. And so we grow satellite cells on a dish that even if you get a few of these fibroblast cells in there, they, like, totally take over. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so you could have a whole bunch of satellite cells, but you get a few of these fibroblast cells, these cells that create this fibrous tissue, uh, they kind of take over the whole dish. They're like the bad apples taking over the neighborhood. Yeah, well, it kind of (laughs) goes to what you're saying. Like, perhaps they're really robust cells that that just function very well. And so, you know, if it's it's more difficult for the other cells, the satellite cells, to do their thing with muscle, perhaps those cells do take over. Hmm, interesting. It's a way hypothetical. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can speculate. Right. Um, just real quick, talking about protein, they did a study looking at 25% whey, 25% soy, 50% casein. Uh, just looking at, again, the acute changes, they had a great amount of leucine, so greater than 2 grams of leucine in it. So that goes back to sort of the leucine threshold of, you know, 2.5 to 3.5. I've seen some stuff even 4 grams that leucine is needed to sort of kickstart the process of building new proteins obviously you're going to need some raw material which is the amino acids with it also they resistance trained them three days per week did some whole body stuff and i think the result was that it it showed that it was was positive that you know it did seem to to work in terms of increasing muscle and that type of thing i think their question was is that possible with a blend of whey, soy, and casein. Eh, it was interesting, but I think the, the takeaway is, if I remember correctly, they showed some uh, testosterone panels from this program that they had them do before and after, and even though there's soy in there, they didn't show any change in testosterone levels. So it appears that at least on this study, a small amount of soy protein, um, if it's mixed in a blend, you know, can still help and didn't seem to decrease uh, testosterone could also argue that there was enough whey and possibly casein in there to see the response Uh, there's some acute data showing that casein may not be very good for muscle protein synthesis i think if you add enough leucine to it it's probably going to be okay but that's probably to be determined yet so yeah in my notes between those two groups the blend and the 100 percent whey, they um they had three months of that resistance training. They all showed increased muscle mass very similarly. I had the additional note, too, that they said protein, uh, and I, I'm assuming this is protein in general, versus lower protein was needed for them to keep the sustained strength gains mm. that they obtained in that. I'm not sure how far out they went with that. Um, and, um, yeah, do you know? I don't have I it have in my notes. I have a note that it was a 12-week study, but I'm not sure study, okay. when that measurement was done, so... Do you know, uh, did they measure any uh, estrogen at all? Estrogen-like Yeah, panels? I don't remember them showing any estrogen panels. It was They may have done it. They just I, they didn't present it. So that would mm-hmm. be a, a good question to ask, too. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then another one on sleep that was very interesting, I thought. And 
pretty cool um, study and just a little bit of a background for people that in about, I think it was 2000, they discovered that your body has all these tiny what they call clocks in every system. And the main sort of master clock is the SCN, which is located in the brain. So people are very familiar with that because that's the main one that melatonin uh, reacts with. People know melatonin as the main hormone that regulates sleep-wake cycles. People use it to try to counteract jet lag and that type of thing. And they found that there's all these clocks that are in all tissues of the body, whether they pull muscle, they pull liver, white adipose tissue, brown adipose tissue. It seems like every little tissue in the body has sort of its own clock. And the theory is that the SEN is sort of the central or master regulator and that it helps exert uh, forces to kind of get everything in the peripheral body to line up. And the, the thing to me that I think is fascinating as we're just, I think, learning how all this stuff works together. I think another guy in another study said that there was, uh, the Brazilian researcher said it's up to maybe 30 or 40 percent of the genes that are encoded in the body have some sort of what they call chronobiology effect. So pretty high amount. We're not really sure what a lot of them do. And in this study, it was a human study, so uh, 10 subjects, and their main question was, if you have a five-hour delay in your meal, does that change any sort of markers of these clock functions, both central and peripheral? And then we can get into what you know, sort of functional changes. And they took people as a BMI of 20 to 30. They were healthy. They ran them through a whole battery of tests. <clears throat> so this was actually not a diseased population. And the cool part is beforehand, they put them on a sleep-wake cycle of the same thing. For 10 days, so try to get people to be regulated and going to bed at the same time, waking yeah. up at the same time. This is not a rat study, by the way. I think we might yeah. initially think this to be a rodent study. This is a human study. Yeah, it's a human study, and it's a, a great point because there's a lot of interesting research in rats with you know day-night cycles and <clears throat> accommodating them. And those studies, I don't want to say are easy to run in rats, but much easier in rats than humans. <laughs> Um, so this is actually the, one of the very first human studies that looked at this. And they had them exposed to 15 minutes of sunlight when they first woke up. So they're doing everything they can to make sure that their you know, chronobiology is all lining up. And they were in the lab for two weeks, so 14 days of being in the lab. And they had what they call seven sort of pre-controlled meal times. They worked with the registered dietitian to regulate the calories so pretty well regulated everywhere they did 10 fat biopsies over 14 days so they're trying to look at the genes that are located just in subcutaneous fat they're doing blood draws every 12 hours so long story short very comprehensive i have no idea how much it cost them but it must have been a lot of money a lot of time and what they saw was that if there was no difference really in hunger. So the question they were asking is, if you normally ate breakfast, let's say at you know 8 a.m., if we compare that to shifting that five hours later, but we still control for the same amount of calories, is there really any difference in these clocks? Because the theory is that uh, meal timing also helps regulate these clocks that are located in your body. And what they found was there's no difference really in hunger. There's no difference really in sleepiness. Um, they didn't find really much difference in anything there. 
What they did find was what they call a PER2 and PER3, which are peripheral gene markers um, in the, the blood and the adipose tissue, that those were actually a little bit different. I think it was the adipose ones that were, were different. Mm-hmm. And their conclusion was that that humans seem to be much less susceptible to changes in meal compared to the animal data. And in this study, it's important to note, too, that that they had them exposed to light and that light may be a pretty powerful resynchronizer. So they didn't lock them away from any light. They purposely had light exposure. They tried to do everything else the same, and they only moved the meal time. Because their question was, does meal timing alone, even with the same amount of going to bed, the same amount of light exposure, does meal timing alone show anything? And last part on that, too, is that they're still looking at uh, functional measures, so glucose and leptin and other you know, markers that may look at satiety and fuel usage and that type of thing. So he said they're still looking at that, but they literally sound like just finished the data, putting it together like a couple weeks ago. So it hasn't even been published uh, yet. It's from the University of Surrey. I probably slaughtered that name um, out in the, the U.K., so very interesting that at least in this study, no massive change with uh, meal timing. But I think the big caveat is making sure that the rest of your sleep is well regulated and you are getting light exposure, and those things may be more powerful overriders of just changing a meal timing alone for chronotropic effects. Yeah, I think for us, the I, I thought it was. I mean, this is a fantastically done study. Like you said, the resources available for this oh, is wow. crazy. So. Hopefully they do more uh, of these types of research. But, you know, for us, I think it was very interesting that shifting those meals by five hours really had no effect on hunger or asleep. Yeah. I think is really interesting, especially I'm I'm that person. I, I don't eat much for breakfast, if at all. I start eating at lunch and then I sometimes have a late meal in the day, too before bed and you know i've always heard some conflicting evidence on whether or not that's going to disturb my sleep or not and the more i look into it the more i don't see much of a a problem with my sleep and this research doesn't seem to uh say that eating late has anything to do with that too because i think that meal if they delay it to uh, 12 o'clock that puts our last meal around 10 Mm o'clock p.m so that's pretty darn late and then they also had the conclusion that, uh, you know, perhaps if you are needing a, a treatment, if you will, for circadian uh, desynchrony, you could use these, uh, you could use meal timing to perhaps reset that clock. But the the Trump uh, variable is definitely going to be that light. They said that, you know, the uh, exposure to light and strong light is going to be pretty much the major factor for regulating those sleep circadian rhythms. So pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, and that, that kind of matches what I've been doing myself and had clients do is just get up in the morning and go for a short um, 20, 30-minute, even 15-minute walk. You know, you're, you're fasted, so maybe you burn a little more fat. Yeah, Probably not going to result in huge body comp changes, but it's just easy to get up, walk out the door. Most people feel better. And then um, Dan Party has shown a lot of, uh, talked about cool data that in his experience and what he's looked at the data, he said you can get about 80% of the effect by just you know having about a half hour of light exposure during the day, and that that helps reset you know the sleep wake cycles through different mechanisms. And so we know a lot of people are going to be indoors a lot, not going to be exposed to much light. A lot of people tend to do more computer work at night and that type of thing. So I found that just anecdotally too, if you can get that consistent light exposure during the day, it takes several weeks to kind of get it turned around. 
um, you can maybe mess up some other stuff and, and still be okay. Then maybe that's one of the, the bigger sort of overriders too, possibly. And then this, this data would, would agree with that hypothesis. Yeah, very cool. Um, I know as we are getting close to wrapping up, and you might have a few tidbits for us to end with too, but I, I thought a really interesting talk or a very well-done talk was uh, we, we went to uh, an area that was discussing uh, artificial sweeteners. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, as, a, as someone that uses artificial sweeteners, I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, there were two that kind of stuck out in my mind. One, about how artificial sweeteners do appear to alter gut microbiota, which we've heard over the years as just a hot topic. And I think we both agree that, sure, there, there are all these changes that are coming out of it, but really what is true good gut microbiota versus bad. And so these are the little microorganisms that are in our uh, our gut that interact with um, our bodies in, in a very distinct way that we're finding more and more about. Uh, so, you know, we have that kind of talk where, sure, it seems like artificial sweeteners might alter that and some of the... Um, you know, ways that we incorporate glucose and insulin sensitivity and all that's very interesting. But then we had a really good talk and he might have been somewhat biased because uh, didn't he have some affiliation with yeah, Anjimoto, uh, which makes artificial sweeteners yeah. and one other company that, that makes them also too. So, but I'll tell you what he had a, I mean, this guy was well-educated and sure he probably is paid to be well-educated yeah. on this topic, but man, he knew his stuff. And, and I, I felt like uh, at least what he presented, and again, he might be leaving out pivotal pieces sure. of information, uh, you know, some pretty good evidence that, you know, the artificial sweeteners don't necessarily seem to be causing, I think he related it to obesity and weight gain, don't appear to be the causes. And in fact, uh, you know, might be the alternatives that people are trying to make when they do become overweight and obese. So, mm -hmm. you know, here someone gets to that level, how can I change that? And that's when they start incorporating these artificial sweeteners. And if you measure them at that one point in time, yeah. now you have these overweight and obese people that are consuming artificial sweeteners. Oh, oh. That, that, you know, it must be causing. And you guys yeah. hear this all the time. They must be causing the damn fires. Right. So anyways, <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, some pretty solid research from that gentleman on, you know, the artificial sweeteners aren't making us fat. Uh, may or may not be right, but I was impressed with his presentation. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to be determined with the whole gut biome. And, you know, the question we've had from a bunch of people we've talked to here is that what what is normal, right? And if you look at how a lot of the, the rat studies are done, they use specific types of rats and they take certain things out and they sterilize part of the environment and inject it back in. And, you know, all that's very interesting and, and cool for basic research, but you really can't do that in humans, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even just... How do you analyze what the gut microbiome is in humans is still, you know, there's different methods and different ways, but you can't just stick a needle in there and pull out parts of it very easily like you can in an animal model. And even if you could, well, what is a healthy area? What is not? What? How big of an area did you sample? There's trillions of bacteria in there. So it, I always get a little bit nervous saying that it changed it. Okay, but do we know if that made it better or worse, or how big of a change does that matter in the big picture and that type of thing? So, yeah, totally agree. I, I think they'll elucidate some of those changes in the future, but it, at this point in time, I think it's just noted as an interesting topic right now. With uh, heart, it's hard to have some takeaways from those at this present time. Yeah. So I got last two quick things as we wrap up here. Um, one other guy, Dr. Turek, presented some really interesting stuff on mice and uh, clock genes. What I thought was fascinating is that there's a gene, the clock gene, has 100,000 base pairs in it. 
And in the mouse model, they found that one of these base pairs, so one out of 100,000, was basically not correct. And that, that screwed up the mouse's ability to tell uh, cycles. So they said the average healthy mice is about 23.7 hours per day. If you remove them of any you know, sort of light, dark stimulus and food and all that kind of stuff, their inherent sort of backup clock is very close to 24 hours. And if you mess with just one of these 100,000 base pairs that these mice are all over the place, that they kind of go up to 28-hour clocks and they're just kind of pretty hosed up, which I thought was very interesting that just one base pair doesn't get, you know, sort of replicated or manufactured the way that it should be when you've got this sort of massive um, defect, which, you know, goes to show you how sort of robust physiology is in some sense, and yet how fragile it can be and how rare that we see those things actually show up. Um, so that just kind of made my head spin. So. Yeah, it's pretty amazing <laughs> for, for those non-genetic people out there, you know. So uh, Dr. Nelson was talking about, you know, 100 base pairs. If you're, if you're typing a sentence with 100 letters in it, you know, and, and you read, you know, you read this sentence and it makes sense and you change, you know, uh, you have the and you change mm-hmm. the T to an A. So you have A-H-E instead of T-H-E. Uh, you know, that's the one change you're making in this gene. You're making one, a change in one letter yeah. in those hundred letters. hundred thousand. Yeah, a hundred thousand, right? Yeah. So you're making that one change and you've totally uh, altered the ability of someone to have this normal circadian rhythm. I mean, that's that's amazingly fantastic. Yeah. And the last two points, the one guy did bring this up about uh, reindeer living in Finland who have 24-hour light and dark cycles. I'm probably the only person in the world that actually wondered about that. Because I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, what about all the animals that live, like, way far out of the north? They seem to survive with screwed-up circadian rhythms all the time. Yeah. So he didn't talk too much about that. And then the last comment I had is um, we had some really cool conversations with people. We got to go out to dinner last night with a bunch of awesome people. I got to talk to Dr. Dom D'Agostino about some really interesting research on ketones. I'm using a liquid ketone for actually wound healing. Uh, I was in a sick population who had very high levels of resting glucose. So ketones will drop your uh, resting blood glucose quite a bit. And in this case, uh, showed helps with uh, healing effects. Um, So I think that's an area to, uh, I can't say any more beyond that. I'll leave it at that. But I think looking for products in the future, there's like a couple that are on the market now that's literally a ketone supplement that you can take. And so your blood levels of ketones, sort of this alternative fuel source, um, get really high within uh, 20 minutes. Um, so I've actually tried it, and you can watch on a glucometer, your blood glucose actually drops very low. So instead of doing a nutritional ketogenic approach, which is really, really high fat, moderate to low protein, very, very low carbohydrates, even then it takes you several weeks to maybe months to get into what they call a nutritional ketone state or ketosis, nutritional ketosis. Um, Now you can take a supplement and have those high levels for a period of time, um, literally within a few minutes. So I think we'll see a lot more research in that area. Um, There's some anecdotal reports from uh, more aerobic athletes using them and that type of thing. So uh, very cool research and uh, keep your eyes out for, ears out for that. Yeah, we ran into... uh uh, Dr. Hoffman, too. Yeah, Jay Hoffman was here. Uh, yeah, poster from University of Central Florida, and 
he's an extremely bright guy that just kind of went on a, a bit of a little uh, rant, not really a rant, but yeah. uh, on some data that he had. It was very interesting to listen to about his uh, thoughts on on kind of like periodizing. Yeah, right? periodization. And, protocols, yeah. Yeah, kind of if you've got an athlete that's sort of <clears throat> getting close to being maxed out, how effective is periodization? How much more do you overload do you add them? And I, I think that's always a question with more say elite athletes or people that are getting closer to their genetic potential, whatever that ends up being, you've got someone who is accustomed to pretty heavy loads, pretty high volume. And we know to get a positive adaptation, you know, overload is the main driving principle. So how do you sort of safely do that in order to get them to, you know, progress forward again? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think we got no good answer from that yet. No, no good answer. (laughs) Uh, I think that was the same discussion too. We were talking about how perhaps, uh, someone's fiber type makeup might determine their Mm -hmm. optimal way of doing that especially at that more advanced period where you're kind of getting close to someone's ceiling ability uh yeah very interesting stuff so yeah and one thing if i wondered about that too but i haven't seen any data is that you know john mike could probably comment on this too if you do heavy eccentric exercise maybe that's enough to get the satellite cells to be active again and maybe that's enough to sort of kickstart that process for lack of a better word so if you've got a more advanced athlete maybe you need to do a block of eccentric type training to sort of get the satellite cells involved again to get the process going and then add more overload after that Mm -hmm. i don't know so maybe at some point damage and those types of things that aren't the main drivers for hypertrophy it's usually you know tension but maybe in advanced athletes, I know my buddy Cal Dietz at U of M has used triphasic where he'll have them do a period of two weeks of just uh, eccentric loading, really teaching them to be able to, for example, lower in a squat to absorb those high amounts of force so that they can then redistribute it back up. Maybe part of that method is you're inducing more muscle damage, which is maybe activating satellite cells, and then that maybe sets you up for a bigger response after that. I don't know. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. So that was a summary from the Experimental Biology Conference here. And I would say the big takeaways are, you know, standard stuff. Protein is good. I think we'll see a lot more stuff on <clears throat> gut microbiota coming up. I think the chronotropic effects or the chronobiology world is very interesting. And we'll figure out a lot more stuff on that. And most of the researchers agreed that the people in the U.S. at least are, are not following sort of their own circadian rhythms and how much of an effect does that have is to be determined. They all seem to be in consensus that it's not going in the right direction <laughs> where we're headed. How much of an effect yeah, probably remains to, to be determined. So, yep. Any other final words? Mine, I think that's great. I, I think mine are general in that, you know, I go to these every year and, you know, Dr. Nelson, I know you go to all kinds of conferences and we've been in this for quite a while. We're not seasoned veterans by yeah. any means. We're fairly young. But every time we go to these, I have the same response. And that is there are so many, uh, so many ideas out there and so many pieces of knowledge that we just don't we don't know yet yeah. that we're still elucidating. And I think that makes it so much fun to be in this field you know um, exercise physiology uh exercise sport nutrition is still kind of a young 
uh, yeah, very field, and, and it's really growing. And so I hope all of our listeners out there uh, stay intrigued, stay thirsty for more knowledge. And uh, I hope they get to come to one of these conferences, too, and have the same feeling that we do at the end of these. And that is, wow, we, we still have a lot to learn. Yeah, and thank you very much for <clears throat> coming with Dr. Cotter. It's always good to bounce ideas off of you and get your opinions on my wacky ideas, too. <laughs> I think we have a good one. You might perhaps find an additive to your coffee oh, one of these yeah, days. That, we'll leave it at that. I had to check into that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I could use that right about now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Cool, awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. Greatly appreciate it. And we'll hear from you and talk to you guys soon. See you. Yep, thanks. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.